those of you who are married in this room, I don't know if you've noticed, but occasionally spouses might offend each other. And forgiveness and grace is a really important part of a marriage. And we live in a culture that, that really doesn't value forgiving anymore. And, and the, the, the process of forgiving, the, the art of forgiving, the, um, the manifesting of trust and relationship through forgiving. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, even on Sunday morning, about how, <clears throat> well, right here, we, Melissa and John are sitting on opposite sides of the aisle. We might have to, this might be good for you guys. Oh, okay. Um, uh, we talked about this before uh, in, in the communication textbook that I use, um, at, which I didn't choose, by the way, but we use at Paradise Valley Community College. And generally, it's a very good, very good book. But um, Joseph DeVito, the, the, the author of the book, uh, talks about uh, how when you offend somebody else, when you've obviously done something wrong, you've harmed somebody else, you've offended somebody else, generally in this context, he's talking about through what you've said, which that's a lot of the ways that we offend each other, right? But he says, really, there's three ways that you can handle it, and they all come under this thing that, that, that scholars call the excuse. And some of you remember, you've heard me talk about this before. And there are three kinds of excuses that we use. So when we offend somebody, we, we employ the excuse. And the first type of excuse is just an outright denial. We just deny that we did whatever it is that the other person is saying offended them. I didn't do that. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. So that's one way to do it. We just deny it. We refuse to take any responsibility uh, whatsoever for that. Uh, the second type of excuse that we use is what people call either equivocation or mitigation. Uh, I, I like the word mitigation a little bit better. It's where we, we admit that we've done something but what, what we've done is really not as bad as the offended person is making it out to be. So what we do is we say, yeah, I suppose I did do that, or I suppose I did say that, but you're making, a big, you're making too big a deal out of it. It really wasn't that big of a deal. Okay? So you try to mitigate what, what the other person feels is the effect of the offense. Okay? But again, you're trying not to take responsibility for it. Okay? Uh, the, the third... Uh, excuse that we use is what people call the yes but excuse. Uh, that's when it, you, you say, yes, I did it, but again, trying to deny uh, responsibility for it, uh, you say, yes, but you deserved it. So again, we try to put the onus on the person who was offended. You're offended because you deserve to be offended. Yes, but the truth hurts, doesn't it? Yes, but sometimes you have to say things in order to clarify. Now, now all of those things may be true, but do, do you, when you've been offended, are you satisfied when somebody gives you a yes, but? Has that ever satisfied? Have you ever walked away from somebody who goes, I know you're offended, but you suck. Or I know you, you're offended, but you, you, know, you deserved it. Have you ever gone, Oh, yes, I see your point. I feel better now. And walked, Has that ever worked on you? No, it doesn't work, okay? So the thing that's been interesting about this textbook, we've watched this textbook over several editions, and just now, DeVito is finally getting to a point where he's saying, okay, we acknowledge that maybe there's a fourth way you could handle this, but he doesn't give it near the time that, that you should, that he should, and that's that you can, you can actually apologize to the person for offending them. You can take responsibility, you can own it and apologize. But he spends like, you know, a sentence and a half on it where he's got all this other stuff on the excuse. And so essentially he's still, you know, he's still teaching the excuse to our culture rather than the apology. Now, you contrast that with <clears throat> one of my all-time favorite books. Um, and it's not my favorite because it made me feel good about myself. It's one of my favorites because it was so convicting and so challenging and it's considered a classic book now. It was written originally in 1985. Uh, it's still around. It's called The Freedom of Forgiveness. And it's by David Augsburger. Um, and, and, and he writes uh, this entire book, 140 pages about forgiveness. And, and it's a must read. 
And if you would like a copy of the book, I have uh, a couple copies in the office and I'd be happy to give it to you, but it's a, it's a very helpful read. Now, I, admittedly, Augsburger gets a li- at times a little bit too fluffy for me, um, but overall, it's, it's, it's really a, a very, very good book. I, I actually uh, took a class from him at Fuller. It was one of the best classes I ever took. He's written several books, but this is probably um, the best one that he's ever written. At any rate, um, he talks about when you've offended somebody, when you've sinned against somebody, uh, there is a process that you can go through that really helps the other person, the offended person. And uh, we don't have time to go into it, but he sets it in the context of how when you've been offended, what you really want is justice. We all want justice, right? Okay? The problem is, is that what we think is just is usually way more than the offense was worth or it's never as satisfying to us when we get what we think is justice. It never satisfies us the way we think it will. He uses as an example um, the fact that <clears throat> um, uh, uh, people who's, who's, who've had a loved one murdered you've seen this on television, they will go to the trial and they will follow the trial and they'll sit in the trial and they'll watch and they'll, they'll even help the prosecuting attorneys if they can because they want the person that killed their loved one to be convicted and then they want the maximum penalty, which is usually death. And they really believe that if they can get the conviction and get the death penalty for the person, that they will feel like, uh, they'll, they'll feel like they've been made whole again. And, and then it happens they get the conviction, and the person is sentenced to the maximum, whatever it is, death or life in prison. And then after the trial is over, they go to the people and they ask them, well, do you feel vindicated? And they say, you know, I thought I was going to feel vindicated, but I still don't. Okay, so what really what we want is not even necessarily justice. What we want is to be made whole again, which is to say that we want to be able to go back to the way things were before the offense even happened. We want life to be as if the offense never really even happened. We want Superman to do that thing where he flies the opposite way around the earth and he's able to go back, make time go back, okay? Well, we can't do that, okay? So we have, to, we have to be able to come the closest we can to that in humility and in submission. And he's developed a process. And admittedly, this is a methodology but it's, but it's also a methodology that Jesus would advocate, okay? You look at um, all the teaching that, that Jesus does on forgiveness and he would advocate this. So he says it's a four-step process. I will tell you that since I learned about this and started using this, especially with my wife, um, and I don't, just, I don't just use this <clears throat> willy-nilly. <clears throat> this is usually for the big stuff. And it's where I'm obviously guilty. Otherwise, I will lean into the excuses if I think I can get away with it. I'm just kidding. Um, Not really. Anyway, um, but every time I've used this, this process has worked in the life of the person that I've offended to the extent that they feel like they did get to be made at least partially whole again after the offense, whatever it is that I've done. Okay? So I want to just explain this process to you uh, it is really hard. It's really challenging. You're going to eat crow to do this. You're going to eat a lot of humble pie. Uh, but it, I would say it's worth it, okay? So um, here is the first step. The first step is that you actually have to declare the offense. By the way, this works not just with your spouse, but with anybody that you're in relationship with. And I've used it with um, other people that I'm in relationship with as well. Don't do it through email. Don't do it through texting, Twitter, Facebook, even the phone. The phone is a last resort if geographically you can't get together. What you need to do is you need to be in physical proximity, face-to-face with the person when you do this. That's the best way. But the first thing you do is you declare the offense. So you sit down and you say, all right, I'm going to tell you what I did to you. That's hard, isn't it? <laughs> you have to actually relive it. You're, you're going to say, here's what I did to you. Now, why do you think this might be important? Because 
That, yeah, you, it's, you, first of all, it's, it's letting the, per, the other person know that you are, it's right out of the gate, you're saying, I'm accepting responsibility for this, okay? Which is a big deal. When you're offended, when somebody offends you, don't, isn't that one of the things you want them, you'd really want them to accept responsibility for what they've done instead of try to blame others? That's one of the first things you want. But the second thing, Melissa, that's really good is um, you want to make sure that you're talking about the same thing. Okay, I've apologized to people before and at the end of the apology, they, they, they have said, well, I appreciate that, but that's not what I was offended about. So that's like a wasted apology, you know? I mean, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and, I, and now I'm waiting for the person to go, so now I have that to be mad at you about as well. I didn't even think about that, okay? But you wanna make sure that you're talking about the exact same thing and you give the person... The, the opportunity to paraphrase back to you so that you know that you're on the same page. <clears throat> Here's the second thing, and this is probably the most difficult of the four steps. You have to acknowledge the pain that you've caused the other person. And this takes some thinking and praying and searching before you actually go and do this. It requires you to put your, it requires empathy. It requires you to put yourself in the position of the offended person and think about why this might be painful to them. Because it might not be painful to you. What you did might not, if it had been done to you, it might not have been painful to you. Okay? But it was painful to them and so now you're be, you, you have to, I don't want to say you're being forced to because, I mean, that sounds like compliance. You want to, in humility, try to empathize with the other person and think, why did this create pain for them? And so you acknowledge, this created pain for you because, and then you talk about that, okay? And you give the other person the opportunity to say, yes, that, but also this, or no, that's not quite it. Here's why it was so painful. And let them talk about it, okay? Jackie and I are two completely different people. We've been married for almost 26 years. We know each other better than <clears throat> we know anybody else on, on the earth. And yet, we still get offended with each other in ways that the other person doesn't understand and can't know, okay? And so we have, to ha we have this conversation occasionally, both ways, Okay? Augsburger says it this way. This is where I say, sometimes he gets a little bit fluffy for me, but he says, before two people can move, together, uh, move ahead together in a relationship after an offense has, has occurred, they must remember the pain together. So this is what's happening here, is you're remembering that together so that there's understanding, okay? I don't, the way he says it, it's a little bit fluffy, but the point he's trying to make is absolutely spot on. You gotta be together. This, this is... This takes humility. This is humbling. Are you getting that sense? Okay. So you have to declare the offense, then acknowledge the pain. And there's give and take there. Don't, you don't just walk in and go, uh, here's what I did. I, I said this and that hurt you because you, you don't like that word. And it's not like that. There has to be some give and take. Okay. And then number three, okay, this shouldn't be too hard to know what I'm going to say here. Promise to what? Never do it again. <laughs> right, now. Already we got some Snickers. Okay, and, and, and Augsburger acknowledges this as well, but are you going to do it again? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Not always, but there are some things that you're going to do again. Okay? But the person wants to hear that you're at least going to work on it. That you're going to try not to ever do it again. They want to hear that. They do want to hear that. And they know, they know as well. They know, yeah, probably going to do it again, but they want to hear you say that you acknowledge that it's something you don't want to do it again, you shouldn't do it again. They want to hear it, okay? So promise never to do it again. And then number four. <clears throat> now at this point, you might think, well, this fourth step is like, I don't even know why you need it. Doesn't it go without saying? You really do need it, Okay. You have to say, will you forgive me? You have to make the ask. You have to say, will you forgive me? I apologize. Will you forgive me? Okay? <clears throat> don't leave this. 
Don't do these three things and then just kind of leave it out there in the open. Okay, in a sense, you want to close the deal. Now, they may not be able to say right then and there, yes, I forgive you. They may not be able to. They may take some time. They may want to take this and chew on it a while. But you got to make that ask and put the ball in their court. Okay? Now, in practice, I will tell you, hard, challenging, humbling, it works. It's the best thing for restoration in a relationship that I've ever seen. It really is. Okay? Um, <clears throat> uh, by the way, let me, just, let, me just, let me say this about forgiveness because uh, Augsburger talks about this as well in, in other books as well, but um, I think this is important to know. Um, a lot of people think, first of all, that if you've forgiven, you have forgotten. You've heard that before, right? Well, if you've forgiven me, you've forgotten about that. Okay. Well, Augsburger makes a very good point. That's physiologically impossible. Okay. The only way you're going to actually forget an offense against you is if something, is if Christ supernaturally intervenes and causes you to forget it. That's the only way. Otherwise, physiology won't let you forget it. And God has made us to remember things because remembering can also protect us, Right? If he made us so that we forgot all the offenses against us, once we forgave them, it could be very dangerous for us because there's some things that he does not want us to forget. Okay? So uh, forgiveness does not involve forgetting. In fact, I would say forgiveness is very often just the opposite. It, when it comes to me forgiving others for major offenses against me, uh, I don't forget. I can't forget. It's too painful. It's too hard. And therefore, forgiving is not a one-time event. It's an everyday event. Sometimes it's an hourly event. I have to go back and revisit it at least every day and remind myself that in Christ, I need to forgive them. Because whatever, whatever they did to me is not anywhere near as big as what, what I've done to Christ. And he paid for that on the cross. Nevertheless, every day I wake up and, and you know, there are some of these things I gotta, I gotta forgive them again. I gotta forgive them again. I gotta forgive them again. So forgiving does not necessarily mean forgetting. It would, it would make some things a lot easier if it did, but it doesn't. Also, it doesn't take two people to forgive. <clears throat> you can forgive somebody even though they've never asked for forgiveness. Okay? And a lot of people end up having to do that. Somebody's offended you especially in families when you've been offended by somebody and then they die, okay? And there's, you never had that conversation. And now you're dealing with the idea of forgiving. Uh, but there's also people that are still alive who will never ask you for forgiveness and you've got to forgive them anyway. You should forgive them anyway because in Christ, he has forgiven you, okay? Um, sometimes forgiving can mean that you're reconciled <coughs> In other words, the offense didn't break the relationship. Okay, you've been reconciled, you're still in relationship, but that doesn't mean the relationship is the same as it was before, right? So we've all been in relationships that were shaped a certain way, and then there was an offense, and then there was forgiveness and reconciliation, and the relationship went forward, but the relationship looked a little bit different now, right? Okay. And then there's the ultimate in forgiveness, which is where both forgive, both are involved in the forgiveness process, you are reconciled, and your relationship is restored pretty much to exactly the way it was before. Okay? Now, the vast majority of the time in marriage, that's what you're aiming for. Obviously, there are huge breaches in marriage that make it very difficult for it to be 100% fully restored to what it was before. Sometimes you have to build your, rebuild your relationship around something that's right there in the middle of your relationship. And I've seen couples do that. I mean, devastating things. Um, and it's only by the power of God that you can do that, you know? Uh, there's a book uh, that Jerry Sitzer wrote um, called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. Uh, he talks about when, <clears throat> in chapter three, he talks about when you lose something, um, in our culture, we're, we're, we're very quick to say, get over it and move on. 
and, and act as if that thing that was in your life was, was never there in the first place, okay? He says the reality of it, though, is that, is that when, when, you, when you had something in a relationship or a person, you had something that was in your life, and now it's been taken away from you, what it's really more like is you had a nice big oak tree in your backyard, and the oak tree got cut down, but there's still a stump in the backyard, and now you have to re-landscape around the stump. The stump is still there, though, reminding you all the time that that, that loss is in your life, and that's more realistic for how th things like this actually happen. A and you and I aren't capable really of doing that apart from, from the power of Christ, apart from the power of the gospel. So in order to restore, to reconcile and restore, it has to be done by the power of, of Christ. But this is a good first step. But this, this first step, this, this um, sort of methodology or process for asking for forgiveness, this has to be done by the person who did the offense. And that's not always easy because, because every one of us, myself included, we're kind of looking for the way out first before we go to this because this is going to be a lot tougher. But in the long run, this is going to be better. Again, that goes back to avoidance. Remember when we were talking about conflict uh, resolution strategies and we talked about how avoidance is our first, our first default. We like to go to avoidance. Okay, this is definitely not avoiding. This is going head on. This is confronting going head on, but it works. Any thoughts or comments about this? <clears throat> Has anybody ever seen this before? Anybody ever used it before? What? It is. It's hard. You got, you got, to, you got to think about it. You got, to think, you, got to about think, you got to really think through every one of these, including this one. You know, you got to think through it. You got to pray about, at least I do. I got to pray about them. Seeking perspective that's not my own. You had to go to her and ask for forgiveness, yeah. Yep. Okay. Um,. Let me talk a little bit about <clears throat> causes of relationship deterioration and um, uh, communication and re relationship deterioration, some common factors, and, and then relationship repair. Just uh, uh, very quickly go through this. This might resonate with some of you. Um, one of the biggest causes for a relationship to begin to de deteriorate would be a crisis event. We're talking about romantic relationships now, a crisis event. 93% um, of marriages in which a special needs child is born or in which a young child is lost through death, 93% of those marriages end up in divorce. 93%. Uh, we had two couples at PBCC um, that uh, had triplets and they both found out uh, there's, there's some kind of a, uh, there's a very high risk factor in triplets that one's going to be Down syndrome for whatever reason that the percentages are really high that one of the triplets will be Down syndrome and uh, both of these couples ended up with one of their children being Downs and having heart problems too. And um, uh, the second couple um, knew that this could be something that would cause them to get divorced. And so they started preparing well before they even had the children to make sure that they did not get, get distracted by this very large challenge of not only having triplets, but one of them being special needs. And that was helpful that they knew that in advance and were able to prepare that way and also sought out that other couple who had already had the triplets with all the problems and you know started getting sort of mentored by them through that, kind of a Second Corinthians chapter one thing, you know. They'd already been kind of through it, so they knew what to expect. But crisis events, okay. Uh, we talked about mutual disenchantment. We, we've talked about that throughout this. That happens a lot. <clears throat> I was watching Long, uh, the Longmire episode from last week, last night, because we DVR it 
Anybody watch Longmire in here? Anybody? Oh, good. So I'm not the only, Jackie and I aren't the only ones. Okay. They might have jumped the shark when they had Vic and the Lauren, the women boxer, when they went at it. That that was kind of silly. Oh, you're watching on Netflix. So we're in season two. Okay. Well, anyway, anyway, you know. The, the woman deputy, she gets into a fight with a female boxer, and they, they go a couple rounds, and we were kind of sitting there going, this is a really good show, but that, that's kind of jump the sharkish there, you know. Anyways, anyway, um, but we were watching that. My point, what was my point? My point was we were watching that last night, and um, there was a marriage that had gone south in the show, and, it, and, and it, I, I, how do I know the marriage went south? Well, apparently the, the husband was looking for a contract killer to take out his wife, so I was pretty sure the marriage had gone south. So anyway, um, they, one of the, the, the dep, um the other deputy was talking to the, to the wife and she said, you know, when we got married, we were just so, when we first met and we got married, we were just so in love. And then over time, you know, you just grow apart and pretty soon you just become disenchanted with each other. And now I can't even remember the last time either one of us showed any interest in each other. Mutual disenchantment. Nobody's working at the relationship. I know that's television, but television actually reflects life sometimes. If you follow me on Twitter, you know that I didn't think so when it came to the movie White House Down, but Monsters University, yes, that was very realistic, okay? So anyway, mutual disenchantment. Um, relationships are in trouble if there's behavioral changes, especially unexplained behavioral changes, okay? Just there's, there's a change in the way somebody's behaving and there's no real explanation for it. This always makes me a little bit nervous, but I like to cite it because I think it's a pretty good, um, in, it, it's, it's pretty insightful. Schrader used to teach, still does, um, I just haven't heard him say it in a while, but he, he said, he used to say, I always suspect that there's an affair going on in a relationship when one of the spouses suddenly um, gets very obsessed about working out and being in really good health, if that's never been a part of their paradigm, you know? And, and in his experience, he's just, in his experience, he's found that that's been true, okay? Um, unrealistic expectations or miscommunicated expectations. Um, that's probably the biggest area where Jackie and I uh, had trouble early on was we both had expectations and they were not well communicated and uh, once we got that figured out, it was really ha helpful. Here's one that hardly anybody ever thinks about, but it's a big one. Unhappiness at work. Unhappiness, at, so if one of the spouses be, starts becoming very unhappy at work, it has a very detrimental effect on the relationship at home. And that's, just not, that's not just me talking. That's, you know, that's the, the research has shown that too. Okay, now... Communication and, during relationship deterioration, common factors. People start to withdraw from each other. Some of us have experienced that in our romantic relationships. You can kind of feel somebody kind of withdrawing from you. They're not as open. Uh, disclosure goes down. Self-disclosure goes down. During this time, they're not, they're not opening up and being as open and honest with you during that time. Uh, there's an increase in deception even little, just little deceptions, minor deceptions. There's increased negativity. So starting to pick, you know, that sort of that constant going after. Uh, and there's declines in favors and compliments. Declines in favors and compliments. Okay. Um, I... I know, again, it's just, it's methodology, but I will tell you that it's helpful. I tell Jackie all the time how much I love her, how much I think of her, uh, how much I like the way she looks. I just tell her that stuff all the time, constantly reinforcing it, you know? And, and I just think it's helpful. I think she wants to hear that, okay? And I think it's helpful, Okay. If I, I guess a good test would be if I just stopped doing that for like six months and see how our relationship would be after six months. I don't want to try that though. So, okay. Uh, so relationship repair. We, again, this is just some reiteration of some things that you probably already know, but um, you, you got to focus on your behavior and change your behavior. If you're only about interested in changing your spouse's behavior, 
just take it from somebody who knows. That doesn't work. Yes? Like you're willing to do things for the other person. Uh, you want to elaborate on what you're thinking about? Yeah, yeah, there you go, Rich, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, just like, um, Jackie doesn't like to get gas in her car, okay? <laughs> Thought I ought to clarify that. Nobody likes to get gas, but she doesn't like to go and get gas in her car, so very often I'll take her car and get gas. I'll gas it up for her. That would be a favor. Does that help clarify? Okay, all right. <laughs> oh yeah, the gas illustration, all right, okay. Uh, follow through on solutions. We have the tendency to start strong but finish very weakly or never finish at all, so that's helpful. Um, take risks. Here you go, speaking of favors. Give favors without, without the guarantee of reciprocity. In other words, do something for somebody else not expecting anything in return. Do something for your spouse not expecting that they will pay you back, okay? And do it more than once, okay? Um, avoid what Augsburger calls negative spirals of reciprocity, okay? So you say one thing, they say the next thing, then you lob a bigger bomb back at them, then they lob a bigger bomb back at you, and pretty soon you're just going like this. And by the way, this is very hard to stop. Once you get that momentum like this, it's really hard to stop. And the only way it stops is if somebody points at the other person and says, all right, you stop it. No, I'm kidding. That's obviously not how you stop it. The only way this negative spiral of, of, of uh, reciprocity stops is if you decide, all right, I'm going to take the last hit, which is going to be painful and hard, but I'm not going to retaliate this time. I'm going to be the one who stops. Okay? That's hard to do, but the benefits are magnificent. Okay? Um, Avoid repeating your own negative patterns. Ask yourself this question sometimes. Are you the common denominator in all of your relationships going south? That's a hard question for some people. Okay? I've talked to people who have been married four, five, six times. It's never their fault. I think that's fascinating. There's one common denominator in each one of those failed marriages. It's not the other spouses. It's them. Okay, now that may sound harsh to you, but it, it, let's be honest, let's at least look at that as a possibility that maybe you're difficult to live with. Okay, which will go back to my first point. You change your behaviors, okay? Now, the last thing I would say is, uh, I just, and I think this is absolutely brilliant. Schrader thinks it's brilliant too. He's the one who came up with it. We might be the only two people who think it's brilliant, but we really think it's brilliant, okay? Because again, it's a little bit hard to do, but the benefits are magnificent, okay? Here you go. When, when, when you two first got, whoever it is, when you first got together, let's say you're married, okay? You're here as a married couple. When you first got together, the reason you got together is because you both, on a scale of one to 10, you both thought that each other was a 10. You did. That's how you got together. And when you think of each other as a 10, you treat each other like 10s, right? But then you get into, um, you know, uh, uh, negative ambiguity and attribution and all those things that we've talked about in past sessions. You get into that and you start to experience some relationship deterioration. I'll show you in a minute the six... Uh, um, the six uh, stages of relationships. You get into deterioration, what happens is you begin to say, ah, you don't say this out loud. You maybe don't even think it consciously, but in your subconscious, you're thinking, ah, she's kind of a seven now. So you treat her like a seven. And then that descends, ah, kind of a 4.3. You treat her like a 4.3. Well, guess what? They're doing the same with you, slick. You're not going from a 10 to a 15. <laughs> You're going down too, okay? So you see how this works? So now, now all of a sudden you got a couple of ones and twos living together, treating each other like ones and twos, right? Okay, so how do you fix that? 
Well, here you go. It's one of those things where obedience comes before feelings. You know, that happens a lot in the gospel life too. You obey before you actually feel like it. Sometimes obedience leads to feeling like it. Okay? A lot of people have this with giving money to the church. They don't necessarily start giving money to the church because they just feel like it, but because they know they're called to it. But then they begin to see how that works, and now they begin to feel like it. Okay? By the way, that's not my little plug for giving to the church. I'm just telling you that's one of those areas of gospel obedience. By the way, here's a big one, uh, sexuality. It's probably the biggest area where even Christians don't really obey very well. Okay? But, and because we don't feel like it. But it's, it's an area where if you, if you obey, the feelings come later because you begin to see the benefits of it. Well, with this uh, relationship thing, you got, you, got a, you got a one or a two there now. You're treating her, him or her like a one or a two. Here you go. Start treating them like a 10 again, even though you don't feel like they're a 10. Start treating them like a 10 again, even though you don't feel like they're a 10. And don't do it for an hour or a day or a week. But hang in there with it. I can't tell, the people who have actually, the couples who have actually done this, and there's probably three or 4,000 of them in my minute. I'm kidding, there's not very many. Because nobody wants to try this. Not very many people will try this. But the people who have tried this, been really good results. The feelings follow the obedience a lot of times in this. So just start treating them like a 10 again. Remember, God sees them as a 10. Okay? And if you're in Christ... <clears throat> And you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's what you're going to do as well. Okay? Uh, one other thing, and then I'll give you a couple of uh, passages and we'll have some questions. All right, so this is just maybe interesting to you, it may not be. Okay? It's interesting to me, though, because I, I, always, I always get people in, in the four, five, and six uh, stages of relationships, I never really get to see them much. Uh, except for premarital counseling in the one, two, or three stages. Here are the six stages of relationships, okay? Number one, initial contact. That's the first time you come in contact with this, with this new person, okay? Now, research shows that within four minutes, within four minutes of meeting a new person, we've decided whether or not we want to go on and have a relationship with this person or not. Within four minutes, we've already decided that, okay? Now, we're not always accurate with that, Okay? How many times have we met somebody and within four minutes we're like, this is like the most awesome person I've ever met. And then six months later, you're both out shopping for weapons, okay? <laughs> that happens. But you, you've also had that thing where you met and within four minutes you're going, I can't stand this person. I don't want to be around this person. But maybe you have to work with them so you have no choice. And six months later, you're best friends. So we're not a very good judge of this, but we still go ahead and decide anyway within four minutes whether or not we're going to like somebody. Okay, um, here's another realistic reference. When Harry met Sally, Sally didn't like Harry very much, right? And they ended up getting married. All right, I'll move on. So, number two is involvement. So now, you, now you're in this section where uh, you've decided you're going to go forward with the relationship, you're going to get involved with them. And what happens in, in involvement is you end up doing a lot of what's called uncertainty reduction. You spend a lot of time trying to get to know the person, asking them questions that clarify who they are for you, reducing uncertainty about them because we all hate uncertainty about other people. We, we want to be certain about people that we're in relationship with, okay? There's nothing worse than being in a relationship with somebody for two, three, five years and then finding out that they have deceived you the whole time. So we engage in what's called uncertainty reduction behaviors. We're trying to find out as much as we can about that person without necessarily hiring a private investigator. We're asking them questions and stuff, okay? So it's like um, you're on a flight, you get on a plane, and you sit down, and the first question you're asking is, uh, do you live in the city that you're going to? Do you live in Minneapolis? No. The second question is always, what do you do for a living? And then it just goes from there. You're trying to reduce uncertainty. That is if you talk to people on, on flights, okay? Um, 
Number three is intimacy. Now, this does not necessarily mean physical intimacy, but it, although it can, but what we're really talking about here is emotional intimacy. Now you're engaging in self-disclosure. You're telling, you're telling some of your secrets, things that you wouldn't ordinarily disclose to other people. You're disclosing to this person, whether it's a friend or a romantic interest. But now you're into the intimacy. Now it's really getting exciting, okay? Uh, you, you're getting very deep with this person. Now, every relationship then eventually hits deterioration. Every relationship experiences deterioration. Here's what we all want in relationships. This is our idea of a relationship, okay? It's just going to always go like that, up and to the right, okay? In reality, relationships go like this. And hopefully the overall uh, trajectory is that it's going to be up, but sometimes it's like that and then it goes back up a little bit. Sometimes, of course, it's like that. You know? Now, with the advent of, of uh, social media, the internet, digital communication and all that, what we've actually cultivated in our culture are people who are addicted to this. And once any little bit of this starts disillusion you're cut off and and so people don't really work through deterioration like they used to 20 years ago okay um, so when you have deterioration one of two things uh, uh, you go to either stage five which is repair or stage six which is disillusion you dissolve the relationship, okay? Now, I will tell you that in pastoral counseling, because we're in the church and we have a different ethic and a different understanding of relationships, we're still going to experience deterioration, but in the church what happens is when, when couples are experiencing deterioration, they will often come to uh, the pastor or, or the staff or try and get pastoral counseling or to the elders or, or whatever it is, or they'll go see a counselor um, and attempt to do repair rather than going to disillusion, okay? Here's what's especially painful, and I'll just tell you, this is just, I'm disclosing myself now. Here's what's especially painful, is when you have a couple there that's, that's there ostensibly for repair, but as you're talking to them, you're discovering, although it's not overtly being revealed, you're just discovering through the conversation, and because you've done this a, a lot of times before, that one of the persons is there for repair, but the other person is there really to just take that step of repair so they can go to disillusion and say, I tried. But they went into the repair thinking, I just want out. And, and often what I'll do is I'll just confront the person at some point. You know, I'll set up a meeting alone and I'll say, look, you're, you're doing this just so that you can set up your, your exit resume, right? <laughs> That's essentially what you're doing. And if that's the case, let's figure that out and certainly let's quit wasting everybody's time, you know. Okay, I, I don't mean that by like, I'm going to drop the case. I just, it's like, this is a waste of time. Let's, let's be honest with everybody in the room, you know. So that's kind of how relationships work, okay. I told you this was going to be sort of random tonight. Now, what some of you guys have been waiting for me to get to, let me just read and talk for a minute about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, I think it is. There's Bibles under the chair if you want to look or bring it up on your phone or your notebook or whatever. So, by the way, I'll just throw this in you. Again, it has nothing to do with marriage, but I think it's helpful. Um, when, when we study the letters that Paul wrote, we, or James or Peter or whoever, but especially Paul, when we study the letters that Paul wrote, we tend to take a little slice of it, you know, a paragraph or a few verses, and we really look at it and study it. And we forget that when, when Paul wrote the letter, he didn't write it like, a paragraph at a time. He didn't write one paragraph and then go away for a week and then come back with a whole new topic. He wrote, there's a, there's a flow, there's a narrative flow to his letters and th there's context there, 
It's interesting if you really understand the context of the verses I'm about to read to you. Um, he, he's talking a lot about sexual immorality in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And he's talking also a lot about uh, divisions in the church. And, and it's interesting then within this, within this context that he, t- that he would talk about this, even though he, he addresses this as now concerning the matters that you wrote me about, he's still doing it within context and especially within the context of sexual immorality. So he writes, chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Uh, Paul, we'd like you to unpack that a little bit further and explain further. Okay. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Oh, he's talking about single men. So single men should not have sexual relations with women or men, but with women. But because of temptation, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's a pretty strong statement about a monogamous sexual relationship, okay? Three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise to the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. I'd like to wear a t-shirt like that out in the public sphere, wouldn't you? That would be fun. Okay. (laughs) Where was I? I got all excited. All right. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Oh, this goes both ways. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by mutual agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Not tonight, honey, I'm praying. (laughs) And you should be too. Mutual consent, okay? Mutual agreement. Uh... But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In 1999, I was at a church teaching on marriage and um, this couple came to me and I was talking about the importance of of, a healthy sexual relationship in, in marriage. Okay, that that's really important. So I had a couple come to me, a fairly young couple, I mean, nothing physically was prohibiting them from having sexual relations. And they came and they said, we disagree with you on the whole sex thing. Um, we, we have sex maybe once a year and we're fine with that. Okay, now here's, here's what I'm thinking, okay. This is going to sound so awful, but it's just what happened. The wife was the one talking and the husband was going, yes, dear, that's right, okay. So... I'm sitting there going, mm, I don't buy that for a second. I'm a guy, he's a guy, I know how guys think, okay? So um, Jackie caught her at one point and said, is it possible that something else is going on in your relationship? Uh, is it possible that maybe there's, he's doing something else? Oh, no, 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 no. We're just fine with the, this arrangement, Okay. Well, that sat with her for about a week. So one day he goes to work. She starts scratching around and finds out that he's got pornography. He's calling phone numbers. The credit card is maxed out on all this stuff, which he's been keeping uh, from her. Okay. So apparently it wasn't as okay as they were saying. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that if you have a healthy sexual relationship in marriage that there's not going to be any temptation towards pornography. That's a fallacy as well. But it sure doesn't help. It really doesn't help. You're, you're really asking for trouble if there's not... Here's, what Paul, here's how Larry Wright interpreted, uh, interpreted 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. If you're married, it should be sexual yaha time. That's how he interpreted it. Okay? Now... The frequency, all of that, you guys figure that out. I'm not interested in having that conversation with you. But I can tell you that once a year or once a month is not enough. Okay? 
Then he says in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that, I, uh, that all were as I myself am. And he's talking about his singleness. But each has his own gift from God, uh, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the, and to the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Here's what Paul is saying. Uh, you can do a lot more ministry as a single person. And that's true. Except for ministering to your family. Okay? Other than ministering to your family, which is an important ministry, it is true. You're going to be able to serve the church a lot better as a single person. You're going to have a lot more time to be able to do that. Okay? Um, Jim Elliott who was the missionary that was uh, assassinated when he was 22 years old. His wife, what's her first name? Anybody? What? Elizabeth, yes. She published his journals, and, and he wrote in there uh, about how um, uh, m- marriage will get in the way of you, doing, of, of you having the freedom to, to do what God is calling you to do in terms of ministry because you have, you have a responsibility to your spouse and your family to take care of them first. And, and he writes about that. And he writes about it in a very clever and, and creative way. But that's what Paul is saying. So Paul would say, look, sex is good and, it, and it's for recreation as well as procreation. And there should be sex going on in your marriages. That would be a good thing. And if there isn't, there, you're, just, you're asking for trouble and you're inviting temptation. Okay? Last thing, and I'll close with this. Psalm 127 We cite this psalm a lot when it comes to building churches. Pastors cite this psalm a lot when it comes to building churches. And I do not doubt that the principle applies. I do not doubt that it applies to building businesses. I do not doubt that this applies to building everything. But I would also argue that if you look at the last three verses of this psalm, uh, this, is, this psalm is really written within the context of building a family and a marriage. Okay, so here it is. Um, psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So we talk about that a lot as pastors. We have methodologies for church growth and what we're supposed to do and blah, 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 blah. But if God is, isn't going to build the, uh, the, the, the church, there's nothing you can do. Okay? Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to late, re- uh, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And then here you go. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks of, uh, with his enemies at the gate. So, uh, unless uh, Solomon changes direct, ch- just changed topics and changed direction very randomly after he wrote the first two verses, I would suggest that the idea of building the house, if the Lord doesn't build the house, the workers labor in vain, I would suggest that that's really in the context of building your household, your marriage, and your family. And that the Lord has to be at the center of this. And that's why we spent so much time the first couple of weeks really pounding away on the theology and the idea that the gospel has to be the power behind your marriage. And even in the social science stuff that we've talked about, we kept coming back to who Christ is and who Christ is going to be in your relationship and who he is uh, in your life. And that is the, that is the key to this. That is the, uh, that is the cornerstone on which you're going to try and build this stuff. So.